You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner of Virginia joins Washington Post Live to discuss how to respond to vulnerabilities in our cybersecurity, the latest in the bipartisan negotiations over infrastructure, and President Biden's first overseas trip. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post. I write about politics and I want to thank you for joining us in the latest on our series on the 117th Congress. Our guest this morning is Senator Mark Warner. He is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee and he is also a key negotiator in this bipartisan effort that's going on in the Senate to keep uh, President Biden's infrastructure package alive. So welcome, Senator Warner. Karen, great to see you. You've certainly got plenty on your plate these days. Um, But I wanted to ask you first about some, some news that came out over the weekend, which is that the Trump Justice Department which in in wake of revelations that they had been subpoenaing journalist records and records of members of Congress, we now find out that they had also gone to Apple to get to get Don McGahn's phone records at a time when he was actually the sitting White House counsel. What is your sense of the picture that is emerging here? And um, and Attorney General Merrick Garland has said he's going to be appointing an IG to look into this, but is is that really enough? Well, Karen, what I think we're seeing is that it was worse than all of us even imagined. We know we knew that um, unfortunately the Department of Justice had become, in a sense, a personal arm of the uh, Donald Trump protection racket. Uh, Bill Barr was more interested in being Donald Trump's uh, uh, personal enforcer than um, uh, than the nation's top law enforcement official. And these stories uh, sound Nixonian, uh, but they're almost but they're actually worse than Nixonian. So I, I do hope Merrick Garland, uh, whether it's through an IG or other process, gets to the bottom of this, makes clear that a Biden Justice Department would not uh, be going after journalists, not be going after political opponents. Um, I hope this is a dark chapter that uh, we can close. And I do hope, as others have called, that those who are responsible uh, be held accountable. But but won't an IG investigation take a long time? I mean, is that aggressive enough as, as a step here? Or are there other things that you would like to see Merrick Garland and the Justice Department doing. I mean, we have news just this morning that John Demers, who was who heads a Trump holdover, who heads the National Security Division of the Justice Department, is stepping down. Um, do we need to see more action out of them? Well, Karen, I think an IG properly empowered can act quickly. Matter of fact, in many ways, being uh, ha- having the operations of an inspector general's office is the appropriate place. We also need to see, I think the IG will be more familiar uh, with traditional leak investigations. If there is a if there is a faster, more efficient process, I'm open to that. I'm not sure that a separate congressional re- review would actually 
speed that process up. I think the most important thing is that uh, we find uh, those who um, uh, were accountable, uh, hear why they they uh, took what appears to be, at least on the surface, outrageous actions. If there was any kind of appropriate argument, we ought to hear that. Uh, but um, uh, again, the comparisons to the Nixonian Justice Department, uh, and it's actually makes Nixon look better than um, than what Trump was doing. Well, I wanted to talk to you too, as well as I mentioned about where things stand on the infrastructure package. It now looks like your group, and again, to sort of try and and bring this back to a truly bipartisan effort. You're talking about breaking it up into segments and doing pieces of it at a time. Could you describe what this process would look like and what the chances really would be for additional packages down the road? Well, Karen, I mean, one of the things this group has is we trust each other. We we were the group that put together, for the most part, the November, December deal, $908 billion. We got frustrated with um, the so-called powers that be because they were not acting. We knew the country needed additional COVID relief and, and we got it across the finish line. Um, we were not that active. A couple members were talking, but not really with much detail. Um, prior, we wanted to let the Capito uh, conversations go as far as they could. We then came to the table, had a very intense negotiating session. Um, the reported number of uh, 579 in new money is uh, almost double the amount of new money that um, uh, Senator Capito would put forward. We think that meets the kind of once in a lifetime or once in a generation investment in infrastructure. That's 579 billion of new dollars over five years. That's been the reported number. Um, and a, I realize as someone who feels like we also need to come back and revisit our tax code, it's not fair that American businesses pay the uh, smallest amount of corporate tax of any of the 35 industrial nations in the world. Uh, and I do think there are other parts of President Biden's plan around caregiving and particularly around making more meaningful investments around climate change, although the plan that we've discussed uh, would have over $100 billion in energy-related, clean grid, uh, smart grid investments, I do think uh, uh, would would move the ball very significantly. But I do know there would have to be a second piece to this to probably pick up most of our Democrat support. I'm actually pretty optimistic. Again, um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was that um, a bipartisan group couldn't get things done. That same conventional wisdom was proved wrong last November, December. I think it would be great if uh, we could prove conventional wisdom wrong twice in a single 12-month period. And, and how, how confident are you that, that this second piece would, would actually you know, materialize and be passed if, if, you know, if it was an add-on to the first? Well, I mean, a lot of my Democratic colleagues have made very clear to me, and I get it, uh, that you know you can't count on their vote for this more traditional infrastructure package if there's not a second effort, uh, which we call reconciliation, which could include, I think, the kind of tax reform that's needed, uh, both both on the basis of international tax reform 
and a, a fair tax package. Again, I'm not suggesting uh, something as aggressive as President Biden laid out, but uh, we've got some very, I've got some very specific ideas there. And um, this is a once in a generation opportunity to take on the challenge around climate change. And uh, we would be irresponsible if we didn't take those actions. I can only speak for myself, but I have talked to all of the other Democrats um, in the group. And I think, uh, um, I'm not sure there will be a first step if there's not at least visibility on how we get a second step, the reconciliation done. And could you talk a little bit about how this package is gonna be paid for? Um, one of the most traditional routes would be a gas tax. And there was a proposal at one point for an inflation adjusted gas tax. It hasn't been raised since 1993. Is that a complete non-starter at this point? Well, Karen, I've always been in favor of using user fees. I've, I think it makes tremendous sense um, to index the gas tax to inflation. I think we would have, if we would have done that back in the 90s, uh, the highway trust fund wouldn't be in the sad shape that it's in right now. But uh, we have our Republican colleagues who don't want to, in this package, uh, in any traditional sense, raise taxes. And we've got the president uh, who doesn't want to have any kind of um, user fee or tax increase for people who make less than $400,000 a year. That puts some fairly tight constraints on traditional pay-fors. Uh, we, we do have a list of pay-fors uh, that include things like the tax gap, which is a, a real issue. We've had a number of former Treasury Secretaries, Democrats and Republicans alike, who said that uh, literally there are hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars if we simply enforced our existing um, tax laws, gave the IRS the tools and the personnel they need to enforce. Um, there are some other issues around public-private partnerships. There, there are some questions around some of the states who've returned um, unemployment funds and turned those funds back in. Uh, you know, suffice it to say, there may be a little bit of Washington accounting in some of these numbers, but um, uh, if there's a will, there's a way, and and we are working through the both the pay-for component and um, uh, the spending. I think the, the the most important step was getting a new investment number, a top line number that the president and my Democratic colleagues uh, would think would be sufficient for that first step. And um, again, we'll, we'll get a better, we'll get, we'll get a better judgment on that uh, these first couple of days back this week. So over the past few days, we are seeing uh, President Biden for the first time on the international stage uh, in his presidency. How how is his trip going so far? Do you think? I think it's been going. I think it's been going great. I think it's it's great to see an American president that actually gets along with our allies. I think it's great to see an American president. Hopefully, that will stand up to um, Vladimir Putin uh, in Vienna on on Wednesday, as opposed to the kind of you know national and international embarrassment uh, that took place when. Donald Trump kowtowed to Putin in Helsinki a few years back. I think that was one of the darkest days in post-World War II American history. Um, and I think seeing from the intelligence side, um, knowing that our allies want to see America back, they want to see America back 
in terms of standing up to Putin. They want to see America back in terms of form, uh, forming a international policy on, on cybersecurity and, and a, a policy against ransomware. They want to see America back candidly on, on having a united effort against the rise of China, particularly in terms of China's development in areas like semiconductors, 5G, artificial intelligence. You know, the Chinese technology development uh, efforts are um, some of the greatest economic challenges, I think, um, not only the United States, but the EU, Japan, South Korea, that we've ever faced. Uh, it is a, China is the real deal. And I think um, our allies would welcome America's leadership back in those areas. Well, today, um, today is uh, the NATO summit. And of course, uh, President Trump it was his 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 NATO meetings were uh, shall we say interesting in that he was essentially you know constantly talking about how the NATO allies don't pay their share constantly making threats to pull out of NATO entirely. Um, today, though, we are reading in the Washington Post is reporting that that's, our NATO allies are very, very concerned and would really like a lot more specificity from President Biden regarding the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is going to, supposed to be complete by the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks this fall. Um, could you talk a little bit about your sense of, you know, the, the plans here uh, are, should should the United States be providing more details really than they are? Because a lot of the allies thought that they were, you know, caught flat-footed even by the announcement that, that, you know, we would be leading the pullout. How are you feeling about all of this right now? Well, I, I've seen over the years a lot of bad plans about Afghanistan. I've never seen what I would view as a good plan. And in many ways, you know, when Trump uh, put us on a path to withdrawal, um, you know, he probably was right. And I think Biden reaffirmed that the idea that if we really were going to keep another four to five thousand troops, and that's what we were would have needed to particularly maintain some of our intelligence uh, capabilities, you know, would we would it, would Afghanistan be that much different, or that much better, or that much more stable? two years, five years, seven years from now. Um, this is a, a hard, hard nut to crack. Uh, so I think, it, you know, and, and, and it was a close call, um, but I think when the president decided he was going to uh, take us out, take us out clearly, I, I actually um, feel like those withdrawal plans have been shared with allies. I do think we're actually on schedule to potentially even get out of Afghanistan uh, before the September 11th drawdown. I've been particularly concerned uh, that our intelligence assets, that those Afghans who've worked with us uh, over the years, that they get protected. Uh, I think we don't need the kind of embarrassment of what happened when Trump uh, precipitously pulled American troops out of the engagement in Syria and left our Kurdish allies, frankly, to die. Uh, I, I don't want to see that kind of repeat of um, uh, repeat take place. I do think there is a process in place to make sure that most of our key Afghan um, allies who've worked again. I'm looking at more from the intel side are uh, that there there is safe haven or a safe process for them. And I also want to make sure that uh, equipment 
you know, does not fall into the hands of the Taliban. I, I'm, I've actually been pleasantly surprised that the withdrawal so far has been as smooth as it's been. And um, now, again, we've got to still, as we get closer and closer to Kabul, you know, this gets more and more complicated. But uh, the first couple of months, I think, have been um, have been carried out fairly well. And uh, and I actually believe that some of our allies, uh, uh, you know, have felt that, that they have been consulted in, in that withdrawal. And, and in the long run, though, so much of this is going to hinge on the negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban. What is your sense of the state of those negotiations? Karen, I wish I was more optimistic uh, about the um, the future of the Afghan government. Um, you know, this is a government that for years, the United States of America was was paying more to prop up the Afghan government and the Afghan military than the whole GDP of the nation. At some point, um, it, the Afghan Afghanis have to be willing to fight for themselves and have to be willing to have a government with uh, you know, that that has some trust with the the Afghani people. I'm I'm um, I, I'd like to be more optimistic than I am. Uh, I, I worry that the Taliban uh, are, have been playing the long game again. As I said at the outset. Um, Potentially, if we kept four to six thousand American troops there for the foreseeable future, for you know, there could have been more stability. But at what price? And would that have really fundamentally changed uh, the nature of Afghan society? It it has not changed as much as I think most of us would have liked to have seen twenty years into this war. And. Um, uh, Again, well, I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping for the best, but I, I, I don't want to be naive about um, uh, the long term prospects of of, um, uh, of what that Afghan residual forces may look like. I do believe the Afghanis will be able to maintain um, you know, their presence around Kabul and some of the major cities. Um, uh, and again, I, I hope to be potentially pleasantly surprised with a stronger negotiation than um, than what I've seen to date. And, and you had mentioned uh, President, President Biden's meeting with Putin this week. What are you looking for to come out of that? One thing they've, they've already announced is that they're going to scrap the uh, idea of a post-meeting uh, press conference, uh, which I think is probably reflective of, of what happened uh, when Donald Trump met with him. But what is the message that you think Biden needs to deliver here, and what should his top priorities in this in this conversation be? Well, I, I think with Russia, uh, we want a stable relationship, but I think we need to uh, have a president that comes back in and says, "You cannot mess in our elections. Uh, we are aware of what you're trying to do, both in terms of disinformation, misinformation, uh, how even in the 2020 elections." when you use Russian agents and Ukrainian agents, oftentimes manipulating manipulating major American political figures, uh, that was inappropriate. We want you to cut it out. We want you to um, uh, you cut out the kind of threatening behavior that you are taking towards Ukraine and, um, and indirectly towards some of the Baltic states. Uh, I think uh, we need to also have a very strong message 
on cybersecurity, the, uh, the direct Russian government hacking like we saw in the case of SolarWinds. Remember, Karen, SolarWinds was a case where the Russians got into 18,000 companies. Luckily, they only decided to exfiltrate out information, in a sense, classic espionage. But nothing would have stopped them if they'd gotten into those 18,000 companies and instead said, let's go ahead and shut all those companies down the way the cyber criminal group did in terms of the Colonial Pipeline and, and the meatpacking plant and some of the other areas. They could have brought our economy to a, a grinding halt. We need to have, one, we need to pass domestic legislation to require when these cyber incidents take place, that you report them to the government. We also need some international set of standards so that when we say we say to the Russians, whether it's coming from the Russian spy services or a group of cyber criminals, if you are attacking critical infrastructure in America or for that matter in the West, where they shut down uh, the Irish healthcare system a few weeks back, uh, there will be consequences. And we need to have, that's again where it needs to be not just NATO, but you know the the alliance of democracies um, standing up to Putin on this issue around cyber and ransomware. Well, so President Biden has said that he has not seen evidence that the Russian government was directly involved in the colonial pipeline um, hacking and the ransomware. Do you buy that? Well, Karen, the idea that that if you have a group of cyber criminals in Russia, um, they they may not be members of the, the Russian GRU or SVR or FSB, the spy services, but they're operating out of Russia. They are operating with the indirect, at least acquiescence of the Russian government. And don't think for a moment that the Russian spy services, the Russian government is not watching and learning from the techniques of these cyber criminals. I think we need a regime. I think we need an international set of standards, the same way we have around chemical weapons or nuclear weapons or other activities that say if you, if, if something is coming from your country, emanating from your country, and it is going about shutting down things like a healthcare system or shutting down critical infrastructure. The, the levels of what, what's called attribution of you taking the blame for that are going to be such that uh, you're going to have to pay some consequences. Uh, we have both cyber, um, we have cyber offensive capabilities so that occasionally we have used. Uh, we also have the ability to sanction, but we need to do this, I believe, in concert with our allies. This, this can, you know, this is not just a U.S. problem in, in terms of Russia or Chinese uh, cyber activities, whether it be ransomware, you know, hacking of, of and stealing of intellectual property, stealing of personal information in terms of potential use the way, uh, whether it be solar winds or the OPM hack a few years back by the Chinese. Uh, this is an area of vulnerability that I've been shouting on this for, for a long time. I do think the reality of solar winds then combined with the reality of you know people waiting in gas lines with the colonial pipeline the reality of this challenge i think is driven home now and i think you know part of it's incumbent upon us in congress we need and i'll have bipartisan legislation a mandatory incident reporting uh, legislation. We need to start a debate about whether it, it, it ransomware should even be allowed to be paid. Uh, and candidly, one of the good news stories that came out, uh, and I think it, it hopefully put a shock across the bow of um, folks who disproportionately believe in some of the cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, when the United States government was able to go back upstream and 
take back some of the, the ransomware from the cyber criminals in Colonial Pipeline, uh, that was a um, uh, that was a great sign for the good guys in, in terms of uh, potentially um, undermining the payment methodology of choice, which has been Bitcoin for a lot of these cyber criminals. Well, you had talked about the need for an international body to sort of adjudicate these sorts of things. Um, President Biden has indicated he might be open to an idea that Putin has raised, which is essentially that they would turn in their hackers if if the United States would reciprocate and and do the same. Uh, you know this this sort of bilateral uh, effort. Does this make sense to you? Is is this a good way to to be sort of adjudicating issues like this? Presumably, this is not the last we're going to see. Cyber criminals are criminals, and if you're violating American law or if you're violating international standards, you ought to be held accountable. So, any kind of international cooperation, I, I I'm somewhat suspect whether Vladimir Putin's really going to turn over these cyber criminal gangs. I think a lot of these folks, uh, their day job may be working for the Russian spy services and their evening moonlighting may be as cyber criminals. But if we can get to some level of collaboration on an international basis on that, let's have at it. I also think what we're going to need, and one of the things I would have liked to have seen a stronger statement come out of the G7 meeting is, we need to recognize, uh, not so much with Russia, but with China. And when I talk about China, I think it's really important to note at least my beef is with the Communist Party of China, not the Chinese people, or obviously not Chinese Americans. But China has a plan to both steal intellectual property and to compete and try to beat America and the West in every major technology area. And we need to have a counter plan on that. Now, last week, uh, this also passed the Senate, didn't get as much attention. We finally put our money worth our mouth, where our mouth is, invested $52 billion in trying to promote a domestic um, chip industry, uh, semiconductor chips, uh, to build seven to 10 new fabrication facilities here in America. That's critical to our supply chain in all areas. But we're going to need to make similar investments in, in 5G to counter China's efforts around Huawei. We're going to need to make, I think, have an alliance amongst democracies as we do technology development with artificial intelligence, quantum computing, in, in many areas around biotech. Uh, China, in area after area, is, is investing literally hundreds of billions of dollars, combining that with intellectual property theft that amounts to about $500 billion of value every year, combined with a very organized and well-executed plan. And you've got an economic challenge, especially in, in technology areas that we've never seen in this country before. And candidly, again, we're going to need to do this, not just America, but with an alliance of democracies. So whether it's cyber that we need international standards, whether it's around technology development, whether it's around standard setting and rule setting for each of these new technologies. This, these are all areas where America needs to be back and take the lead. But so why do you think that G7 wasn't as aggressive or as explicit as you would have liked to have seen them, given that you have characterized this as, you know, basically the biggest international challenge that we and our allies are facing in in, in 2021. Well, Karen, I think as I talk to uh, 
the intelligence services of most of the democracies around the world. Um, they get it. Uh, if you look at who the nations that are, frankly, the most forward-leaning on issues around, for example, Chinese technology development, it's Japan, it's South Korea, it's Australia, it's neighbors of China in Asia. I think there are still, still particularly in Europe, um, some of the European countries who want to have it both ways, who um, who think if they can keep their heads low and this becomes simply a U.S.-China competition that somehow they can play China off against U.S. And, and, and vice versa. I think that is a losing proposition. I think you see the Chinese government's efforts towards the Uyghurs. You see the Chinese government's efforts towards the people of Hong Kong. China, in many ways, has created a surveillance state uh, that would make uh, uh, George Orwell and and, and and some of his books blush. I mean, uh, they have they manipulate their not only their government cameras but literally the Alibabas, the Badus, the Ten Cents, world class technology companies. Their equivalents of the Facebooks and Apples and Googles. They manipulate those companies to uh, be uh, uh, sharing data and information, and that threat uh, to democracies across uh, both Asia, Europe, North America is um, is a real pervasive threat. And uh, the sooner our, our, all of our European friends realize that this is, um, uh, you can't have it both ways, I think the better. I think growingly the intelligence services may recognize that, but sometimes the governments don't fully appreciate it. But I think it's changing. I think it's dramatically different today than even two years ago. Well, thank you so much, Senator Warner. I'm afraid that is all the time we have this morning, but we want to thank you so much for being with us and hope you're back soon. Thank you so much, Karen. And, and good luck with that those infrastructure negotiations. <laughs> um, so please stay tuned here at 10 o'clock Eastern time tomorrow when my colleague Francis Stead Sellers interviews Sylvia Earle, president and chairman of Mission Blue, discussing the adverse effect climate change is having on our oceans. And of course, you can always head to Washington Post Live and see our other fascinating programs that we have coming up and, and register uh, for more information about them. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com dot com.